bum bum bottom 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 bum b
an open relationship <laughs> with other mediums. Oh. It's impossible. Like, comics are happening within a greater culture, and in that culture is movies and TV and all of that stuff. And it's impossible to separate them completely just like at Baltimore Comic-Con. Did I bring it back around? Did that even work? <laughs> Baltimore Comic-Con right. is the convention we think of as, like, this is our comic book convention. But then again, like, John Leguizamo was there yeah. that, yeah. that year. And the Disney princesses. Yeah. You know, Baltimore Comic-Con, that's right. We wanted to talk about Baltimore Comic-Con. Uh, it is one of my favorite conventions uh, of all conventions. Mm -hmm. And this was the last convention this past weekend that we will be partaking in in 2022 and I am so tired yes <laughs> I'm crazy tired this has been a wild run like from summer through October uh you know we did San Diego Comic-Con we did our family vacation we did New York Comic-Con we did Fantastic Fest and then we did SPX and then we did Baltimore Comic-Con like I've never had so much fun in my life I am also totally wiped. And yeah, the, like like energy wise and also like monetarily. <laughs> like we've yeah. we've bought so many comics, we've got stacks and stacks of stuff we are so excited about and we're broke. Which is why when we were at Baltimore Comic Con, we spent most of our time in those $2, $3 bins. And I gotta say, like Baltimore really brought it with those single mm -hmm. issues. We came away with some gold. We finally started collecting the Amalgam comics. Yes. Uh, we got uh, Speed Demon and Amazon and, um, oh gosh, I can't even remember what the title is of the X-Force slash Teen Titans book where it's like Shatter Starfire. Oh, I, I need all of those comics now. And thankfully, those are mostly in the $2 bins. Yes, like those Amalgam comics are such like a, uh, like a, a remote crevasse yeah. of 90s totally. comic book nostalgia that will just like straight up like never happen again, which yeah. is kind of sad and weird and makes you curious. Um, but, you know, like comic book conventions, even Baltimore Comic Con, they're not all about shopping. No, 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 no. Thankfully not. And because we didn't have a ton of cash with us going into Baltimore Comic Con, we were able to like, I don't know, hang out with actual friends, meet up with comic book couples counseling listeners, uh, go get in line for some really rad signatures with really rad creators. Should we just start with Gene Luen Yang? Oh, man. Because yeah. meeting him was so so special and yeah. he had zero line it was wild because we had just seen him at new york comic-con and we could not get within a football field of that guy mm -hmm. uh, he was there promoting the disney plus adaptation of american born chinese and he was swarmed with folks so we were just like okay well you know, well, we'll catch him some other time. And then we saw he's going to be at Baltimore Comic-Con. And we're going through Artist Alley, and Garth Ennis has a crazy long line. The Simonsons have a crazy long line. Tom King and Mitch Jarrods have a crazy long line. The Disney princesses, John Lake Wazama. And then there is Gene Lu and Yang with no one. Now, I think a big reason why he had no one in line is because he brought nothing with him? Yeah, I like I I think this is a testament to the effectiveness of booth decor. Yes. Like I think that people become kind of blind to like the the like 
just nameplate, yes. white nameplate that they get on the top of their booth. We are looking for those like banners yes. of this is an important and iconic individual that you need to get in line for. And, you know, Gene had tweeted out that he was unable to bring really any books with him mm-hmm. to Baltimore. He, he fit what he could in his briefcase, and that was it. And by the time we got the Gene Luen Yang, there was like one copy for sale of American-born Chinese. Yeah. Now, thankfully, we had seen this tweet, and we knew to travel to Baltimore with our copies of Dragon Hoops and Superman Smashes the Clan. And, you know, the fact that no one was in his line uh, was a, a great advantage for Brad and Lisa. Yeah, I, like, I do think about his feelings, though. Like, what do you think that he could write a poem about the sorrow he feels for nobody being in line, perhaps? Uh, I don't know. I'm just projecting. Well, I mean, if you only saw Gene at Baltimore Comic-Con, I could, you know, you were like, oh, I wonder how sad he is. But we also just saw him at New York Comic-Con. He was at D23. You know, there is a massive fandom around him. I just think that's kind of the nature of going from con to con, right? Like you can't put all your energy in preparing for every single con. You have to um, strategize. Mm -hmm. So he strategized for New York Comic Con at D23 in San Diego and Baltimore. He was just like, you know, this is, I'm playing this fast and loose. And that was again, a benefit for us because we had a really wonderful conversation with Gene Lu and Yang. Yeah, we really got to, express to him how grateful we are for his comics and and how we just want more. Yeah, we talked a lot about Dragon Hoops, uh, but then we would talk, you know, Superman, and then we would talk uh, Monkey Prince, and then we would talk Boxer Saints, and then we would talk American Born Chinese, and at one point he's like, oh, you guys... You guys really like me. You guys are, he, he could tell that he's like, you guys are really involved in books yeah. in general. So of course we get, we did our pitch of comic book couples counseling to G. Lu and Yang. And we discussed our time as booksellers at Barnes and Noble. And it was, it was, it was a really special moment at that convention. One of the other neat things about going to conventions this year in particular is that we get to meet some of our esteemed guests yes. live and in person and right next door to Gene Lu and Yang, hopefully one day upcoming guest, was Garth Ennis, past guest, icon, nice guy, writer of Battle Action. Somebody I don't think remembered being on our show. No, no, but he was really <laughs> polite about forgetting us. He was very nice. He was very nice. We chatted to him for a little bit. Uh, uh, but you know, he, he does a lot of publicity. Mm-hmm. All these people do a lot of publicity and it's okay that he doesn't remember us as the greatest podcast he's ever been on. But he did politely say like, oh yeah, I remember having a good time and I'm going to choose to believe that. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> uh, because we did have a good time. Believing him is free. Yeah. Yeah. That's my own insecurities popping up. Uh, and then like after that, we went over and we, uh, chatted with Tom King and I'm Rich wondering Jarrett. if that guy's getting, getting sick of us. He's like, are they stalking me? I I mean, I have that worry because we have approached him at every convention this year that he's been at, that we've been at. But it does appear that he is open to future collaboration. Yes, and we would be fools to not take him up on it. Because clearly he has a lot of stories. And we were lucky enough to attend a few of his panels at Baltimore Comic-Con, one of which was his Danger Street panel hosted by Bob Harrison. Our friend. And in that one... 
he was partnered up with Mike Gold and Mike Grell mm-hmm. talking about the DC first issue specials that inspired Danger Street. And Tom had some good stories, but he was smart enough to just sit back and let Mike Grell and Mike Gold let loose with this hot gossip session that this panel became. And the things that they were saying, I almost was like, uh, I don't think we can report on some of these stories. <laughs> these don't seem appropriate, especially if you're a Vince Coletta fan. But if you want some steamy quotes from that panel, hit up our Twitter feed, CBCC Podcast. That's why we go to panels. <laughs> we we want the juice. We want the tea. We want to sit in the dugout and get some of that inside baseball <laughs> like we got at Bob Harrison's other panel that had to do with comic book licensing. So good. And on that panel was... Amy Chu, Philip Kennedy Johnson. Mike Grell again. Yes. And John Snyder III. Yes. Amy Chu talked about how cool it was to write comic books for Kiss, <laughs> which I found amazing considering that she was not a Kiss fan. Yeah, and I also really appreciated how Philip Kennedy Johnson and Mike Grell bonded over the fact that they both adapted James Bond novels mm-hmm. and the pains of adapting the novels versus not being able to reference the films in any way. It is not unlike the conversation that we started this podcast with of going like, we can't reference the movies in our podcast episodes about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That would be just wrong and irreverent. Yeah, yeah, so. What was I talking about (laughs) at the beginning of this? My favorite part was the ticking time bomb of Philip Kennedy Johnson putting his foot in his mouth and mentioning that <laughs> oh, yeah. when he was working on, oh, what comic was it? Uh, I th- I think it was, oh no, it was Kong, uh, uh, ooh, Gods of Skull yes, Island. Yes, that's right, that's right. Um, he wanted to introduce all of these other monsters and the editors or well, the, the pu- licensors kept coming back and going like, there are only dinosaurs on this island. Yeah, stegosauruses are nothing. And he said kind of offhandedly that he just kind of let that comment simmer. The word he used was he ignored, ignored it. it. He used the word ignored. And then um, and then you got uh, like me as a highly sensitive person, like watched him doing the mental calculus throughout the rest of the panel going like, should I take that back? Should I not take that back? <laughs> and then like the panel is over. Bob has wrapped it up. We're and getting kicked out. We're being pushed out by the con itself. We're gathering our backpacks and whatnot. They have another panel that has to come next. And Philip stands up and goes like, before everyone leaves, <laughs> just know that it's bad <laughs> advice to ignore the licensor. You should listen. And it was a different kind of situation. And I'm not like that. <laughs> yeah, I was super jealous of Bob Harrison and those two panels. He did such a good job hosting yes. them. They were great themes. Uh, if you see Bob Harrison hosting a panel at a con near you, you really need to do yourself a favor and catch one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were delights. And and before we like get back to you know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, we got to talk about some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, I I wanted to shout out some buds that we saw yes. at Artist Alley. We ran into once again Phil Falco and Cat Calamia. We're also stocking them. We are. Uh, they're they're new- not done. They're going to Rhode Island next weekend. Yeah. If, if we're we're exhausted. 
they are, well, actually, they don't look that exhausted. They're hustling 10 times more than we're hustling. Mm -hmm. It's super impressive and inspiring. Uh, their slice of life comic is a delight. We bought some enamel pins from them so this time around. But it was nice to hang out with them for a little while. But when we were going to approach them, I heard somebody shout out like, hey, Brad, how's it going? And I turned around and it was a former co-worker of mine, Darren Soto, he had a table at Baltimore Comic-Con and he was showing off all his rad art. I bought a t-shirt of this like beautiful candle lady. And it was great to like reconnect with him. But what was kind of special and maybe like a little bittersweet was when we were working together, you know, I was the store manager. I was the head cheese. Uh, as as big a head of cheese as you can be as a store manager <laughs> in a corporate situation, in a corporate situation, a highly yeah. regulated, yeah. And cheese. we we would talk comics a little bit, but not too often. And here we are now at the Baltimore Comic Con, and we have so much in common. And he is like kicking so much butt as this uh, incredible Independent artist. Independent artist, yeah. And it, like I like I was like, oh, I wish. I wish we had spent more time talking this stuff when we were working together. But clearly he's still fond about yeah. it because he was wearing that hat. Yeah. The he, Maker Fair hat. He had the Barnes and Noble Maker Fair hat on, which I clocked immediately. Yeah, we definitely need to commission something from him. Yeah. Just yeah. to kind of complete that circle. Oh, and yeah. also his art is amazing. Yeah, I'll have links in the show notes to his Instagram feed, which is really rad. And while we were chatting with uh him, uh some other friends came up to us. It's the the folks over at Band of Bar. Yes. And they brought us over to their table and we got to look at all their comic books. Like Artist Alley, I mean, look, like sometimes I worry about going into Artist Alley, especially at Baltimore Comic Con this year, because again, we didn't have like a ton of money to spend on all these amazing things. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of like feel like the social pressure. Like, oh gosh, I gotta, I gotta buy from every table I stop at. We, uh, because everybody who has a table... Whether we've seen your work yet or not, we admire yeah. because that means you're really giving it a go. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, like we would love to be where they are. Yeah, of course. And, and, and that is one of the dreams to have a comic book couples counseling comic, comic or book, book a table at Baltimore Comic Con. And so getting to chat with the band of bards, really, really special. Cat mm -hmm. and Phil and Darren, it, it, everyone's just hustling and kicking butt in those artist alleys. And it it's, revs our engine, it our, revs creative, our engines. Yeah. creative engine. Yeah. So Baltimore Comic Con this year. Really, really good one. Yeah. Um, maybe not as crowded as the previous year. Halloween weekend, though. Yeah, yeah. That's like we were trying to do the mental math of like why, why was it less crowded than it was at last Baltimore Comic Con? Last Baltimore Comic Con, though, was before Omicron really reared its head. Yeah, so we were all like, we can go out again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but uh, we were wrong. I also we think deeply apologize. Putting it on Halloween weekend is 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 A difficult. Mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's other factors why they did put it on Halloween weekend. But I would steer clear of it next time, Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we had a great time. A great yeah. time. Baltimore Comic Con still remains one of our favorite conventions. Absolutely love it. If you're on the East Coast, it's worth making the trek. Honestly, if you're a comic book maniac and you feel like these other cons are being overrun by multimedia events, Baltimore Comic Con is your comic con. Yeah, there's no... DC booth or there's no Marvel booth. It's just no movie stuff, really. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just it's just a bunch of long long boxes. Yeah, and people hunched over, hearing those those 
Mylar bags, flippity flap. Yeah, and, and a great artist alley and some heavy hitter comic talent yes. always show up. Yes. So yay, go to Baltimore Comic Con. And now we're smash transitioning into our session with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Would this be a, an appropriate time to say Cowabunga Dudes? Uh, yeah, Cowabunga Dudes. <laughs> yes, Lisa. Right now, we've put Raphael, Donatello, Michelangelo, and Leonardo in our waiting room. I imagine that they stuck all of their weapons in the umbrella stand. Session will begin shortly, but we got to get prepped ourselves. We have to make sure we're prepared for our counseling session. Mm -hmm. um, now, in the show notes, you'll find links to our previous TMNT episode, actually episodes. We also have an interview with Kevin Eastman. Go check that out. A few weeks back, as we mentioned, we had our friend Brian Young on the show to break down the original 1990 movie, as well as talk about what got us into Turtles in the first place. Now, during the Kevin Eastman interview, view, we really got into the origin story of this strange comic book and how it came into being between Eastman and his fellow cartoonist Peter Laird. So go check out that tiny little history lesson if you need it. One anecdote that I don't think we mentioned in that episode is something I recently took note of while revisiting the Turtle Power documentary. That doc begins with Peter Laird talking about these bus kicking turtles. It was just a joke that he and Eastman would laugh about while traveling Route 108 in New Hampshire between Durham and Dover. Something stupid that they found funny and it got me kind of thinking about all the stupid stuff that I used to goof on when I was a kid or teenager. Lisa's heard this before, but my buddy Steve and I used to laugh and I mean, it, it was like, we would like stupid laugh <laughs> over the word creature. Why exactly? No idea. I think it was because like how we would just find new ways to say the word creature, like creature, 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 creature. And it would just drive my dad crazy while he was driving us around. We'd be going on like road trips to Bush Gardens or wherever. And we would just be saying creature over and over again. And then eventually creature morphed into the word crodo. Okay. And we would say the word crodo back and forth. And like, I hear this story about bus kicking turtles and I think about all the dumb ideas and it's not like creature and crota was like an idea, <laughs> but neither is a bus kicking turtle. I think about all the stupid stuff that I used to do that I just laid to waste and did nothing with. Whereas like Eastman and Laird, they've got a dumb joke and then they turn it into this billion dollar franchise. Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering, Lisa, why are there any things when you were a kid that you would do with your friends that were obviously dumb, but had the potential to be turned into a franchise and you just didn't have the vision at the time. Oh, wow. Do you ask that question differently than I anticipated? I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, there were like creative little bits that we would do on the regular. Like I have, like me and my friend Laura, had a ton of inside jokes. And one of them was, we thought it was so hilarious that the opening scene of Sound of Music, Julie Andrews is like spinning and beautifully singing yeah. in this open field. The hills are alive with the sound of music. But in actuality, there is this super loud helicopter flying right over her. So we have lots of cartoons of like, Julie Andrews, like, like, uh, singing beneath this helicopter and getting sucked up into the helicopter. <laughs> and then another one was like, there was a guy 
in the so this is with my like little group of friends that also included like Amy and maybe Kate was there or Kelly and um there was somebody else in the cafeteria a guy who shoved an entire napkin up his nose Ooh, like yeah. the whole thing Gross. and so we would like write little poems about him and the opening line is a um like a inside your great proboscis each day you risk the chance of inhaling something into your esophagus. Each day my life you enhance. So that stuck with okay, me. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's better than my creature Chrono thing. Like, <laughs> that could have been something. I, and I wrote haikus all of the time. Watching the Turtle Power documentary, I was just sort of overwhelmed by Kevin and Peter's early friendship. They were just two dudes who bonded over Jack Kirby, and frankly, their friendship is kind of a miracle anyway. And again, we have to thank public transportation. We have to thank buses for birthing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because before the bus-kicking turtles could even begin, there is this other anecdote that Peter tells, and I wasn't aware of it, but the only reason Kevin Eastman ever reached out to Peter Laird is because a copy of Peter's underground comics magazine, Scat, was left on a bus seat next to Kevin as he traveled from Amherst to Northampton in Massachusetts. He was flipping through that comic, saw a lot in it that he related to, and he decided to reach out to the publication. He did. The guy there gave him Peter's address, and Kevin wrote him a letter about wanting to get into comics. Peter must have liked what he read and invited Kevin over, and when Kevin got there, he saw that Peter had an original page of Jack Kirby art from the DC Comics title The Losers on the Wall, and Kevin had never seen Kirby in person and just lost his mind, and they became immediate best buds. And sometime after that is when they're in a pizza parlor in Wells, Maine, and they write the words Mirage Studios on a napkin, and the joke being that it's not a studio at all, it's just two guys sitting in Laird's living room. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got these crusty old chairs, they're working on lap boards, it's 1983, they're watching bad television, Kevin does the first turtle doodle, and it's just this turtle standing on two legs, carrying nunchucks, wearing a bandana. Laird sees that, finds it funny, he draws his version, and then Kevin has to up that by drawing four turtles, and then he writes the words Ninja Turtles above those figures, and then Laird says, why not add Teenage Mutant to give it a little rhythm to the title? And that's the birth of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and it is a total collaboration. You look at these first few issues of this book, and you cannot tell who did what, whether that is the writing, the toning, the inking, the penciling, the lettering. There's not one contribution by one person that would exist without the contributions of the other person. It's like their two ideas are propping each other up. Yes, and, and that's the thing that I think really radiates out of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's their friendship and collaboration. Mm -hmm which was relatively brief. You know, they became best buds. They created this thing that then became wanted by these corporations. It becomes a cartoon, it becomes a movie. And their friendship could not sustain itself with all those business responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And it eventually burns so bright that they have to go their separate ways. But I believe the reason we love the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 
is that initial love affair between Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. It emanates from every corner and leaks into every iteration that comes after them. You could even say that it oozes. Yeah. Like their friendship is the ooze. Yeah. I'm never wrong. It feels wonderful. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And, you know, they they do put themselves into the books. Raphael is apparently Kevin. Donatello is apparently Pete. Mikey is Steve Levine, an artist who came on board as a letterer first. And, um, yeah, uh, Casey Jones, uh, he's Jack Burton from Big Trouble Little China. Everybody's best friend. Everybody's best friend. That's right. Now the question is, like, who is Leonardo? I couldn't figure that out. I couldn't find any information of the template for Leonardo. Yeah, I was actually talking to my three siblings. Like, I think that since the Ninja Turtles, anytime. There is a group of four people. You have to figure out yeah. who is the who is each of the four Ninja Turtles, and uh, nobody nobody in my family wants to be Leonardo. Uh, interesting. Uh, and and uh, you are obviously Raphael. <laughs> you say that because I'm broody. <laughs> yes, I think I'm Mikey. <laughs> Everyone wants to be Mikey. No, everybody wants to be Raphael because oh. he's like the dark and broody, a like cool he's one. the most effable. Like yeah. everybody wants to be Raphael. <laughs> I'm saying. I, uh, don't get to know me. I'm here for the jokes. All right, all right, all right. Well, there you go. That's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know, first print run was 3,000 copies. They got it done by borrowing money from Kevin's uncle. Comes out in May 1984. That's all I got. I know I said I wasn't going to do a history lesson because we kind of covered a lot of that in our Kevin Eastman interview, but too bad. Uh, I, I just find this stuff so fascinating. Me too. So, Lisa, we got to get to the love expert. I am really excited. Oh, you, you looked like you were going to say some more things. I was going to ask the question of who is our love expert. Okay, I cannot wait to get to it. Let's I am get very to it. excited about our love expert for these boys. Don Hubner, PhD, using her book, The Sibling Survival Guide Surefire Ways to Solve Conflicts, Reduce Rivalry, and Have More Fun with Your Brothers and Sisters, illustrated by Cara McHale. Don Hubner is a psychologist, parent coach, and the author of 14 books. She has been on the Today Show, CNN.com, WebMD, and her TEDx talk on rethinking anxiety has been viewed over 900,000 times. Wow. The reason I'm so excited to get into the subject of siblinghood is that I feel like the subtext of every single comic book couples counseling episode is that I am one of four, I have siblings, and Brad is an only child. Yes. And I believe that because of that, there are certain ways that we like don't relate to each other. Sure. And um, I think the question to start the conversation is, Brad, do you ever feel like you have missed out by never having siblings, like not being raised with siblings? My mom to this day, asks that question to me. And, but the way she phrases it is, do you regret having no brothers and sisters? And the truth is uh, always no. <laughs> I was a kid who never considered having siblings. I think I had an imaginary friend once, but that didn't last long. I loved being an only child. And my answer to that as a person with siblings is, of course you did. That is the power position in the family. But like, I feel like, like, so the cliche about only children is that they are entitled and self-absorbed because 
they and they're not properly socialized because they were not raised in the context of having to think about anyone other than themselves. But I feel like as a person with siblings, I am not properly socialized because I feel like whenever a decision in a group has to be made, it had like like a everybody has to be equally approving of that de decision or like if I even want to make a decision for myself like in my life I feel like I have to check with 19 other different people to go like is everybody cool with me ordering a pizza you know like and and like I feel like you are very good with your own company where I I feel kind of like listless if I'm left alone to my own devices sure so even if this isn't technically like a traditional series on comic book couples counseling that we're not really talking about like a romantic couple. I still feel like this discussion about what it means to be a sibling can still help our marriage and still help, help other people's romantic relationships. I mean, all an adult is, is an asshole child all grown up. And in a twisted way, I feel like if I can like reverse engineer my childhood relationships with my siblings, it can bring me to a place of more peace in my present and I'm gonna be a better partner because of it. And you'll get a taste of what being a sibling is like and maybe you'll understand me a little bit better and you'll be a better partner. Oh, I think having been married to you for 13 years now, being together for 15 years, I have some idea <laughs> of your relationship with your siblings and what it might be like to have a sibling. And I am fascinated by it. And I I think that is one of the bonuses of getting married is experiencing mm. the family dynamics of your partner. Uh, um, and, and But does it make me want to go back in time and force my parents to do it again and <laughs> give me a sibling? No. Okay. Doing it one time was enough for the Gullicksons. I mean, I think I broke my mother. <laughs> Just Wolverine claws on the way out. <laughs> it, we've never talked about it, but I have a feeling that that is the truth. We got to get into this book. I picked this book. <laughs> Kind of just based on the title, not realizing that this book is not a parent's guide to tricking your children to stop picking on each other, but it's written to be read to children. Dr. Hubner's specialty is writing books for six to 12 year old kids to give them the tools to cope with their own mental health struggles which is slightly younger than our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but they're also really busy with their martial arts studies and the Foot Clan and whatnot. Sure. And there's nothing wrong with getting answers that are like quick and easy. No, my favorite kind. The Sibling Survival Guide is 11 chapters of five-ish pages of applicable tips and workbook type material. If you decided to use this book with your own kids, I imagine you could cover one chapter do the workbook material and have a meaningful discussion in about like 20 to 30 minutes. Keeping in mind that Brad and I do not have kids, <laughs> let alone your kids, so your mileage may vary. <laughs> this week, we're gonna cover the introduction titled A Note to Parents and Caregivers for Splinter. Then we'll start the brothers on the first two chapters. Just a little note, this book could also be used with guardians other than parents, and Dr. Hubner acknowledges that, but since we're dealing with Splinter and the Turtles, we're going to be mostly referring to parental figures. In the note to parents and caregivers, Dr. Hubner says that the single most important thing a parent can do to reduce sibling rivalry is to remove themselves from the equation 
and encouraging their kiddos to work it out on their own. Apparently, the subtext motivating many sibling squabbles is who does Master Splinter love most? Kids see their siblings as their competitors and parents' favor as the prize. Once you, the parent, have established yourself as the settler of disputes, you start seeing tattling behavior. You may feel that you are modeling logical thinking with your rulings, just let them use it. Leave them alone, they're younger than you. But the only thing they're listening for is whose side you're taking, because clearly that's the one you love more. Dr. Hubner acknowledges that it can be frustrating and heartbreaking to listen to your kids argue. And it's pretty common for kids to say some nasty, negative things about their siblings. Your advice should go to managing the emotions first before giving any advice for managing the other sibling. You can start by building the family narrative around cooperation and seeing the good in one another. Here's a quote. Describe your family as a unit placing a premium on helping one another, model patience and acceptance of individual differences, avoid the urge to compare your children, strive to be fair, keep in mind, however, that fair is different than equal. Treating each child exactly the same is an unrealistic and unhelpful goal. That's the end of the quote. And what's great about Ninja Turtles as it progresses, you know, maybe not necessarily the case in these early seven issues, they have very distinct personalities and personal goals. Mm -hmm. And so I think the Turtles do serve as an interesting template for sibling uh, tension. Yes, we certainly see that in... Leonardo and Raphael's relationship where Raphael kind of goes like, well, how come Leonardo is established as the leader? How come I don't get to be the leader sometimes? And I think that part of being a sibling is kind of that comparison and differentiation. And like, I feel like the kids are going to do that anyway. They don't necessarily need any help from dad to go like, okay, you're going to be the science one and you're going to be the silly one. There is no good reason why Leonardo is the leader and Raphael is not, other than the a million different, you know, nature, nurture influences that dealt the cards this way. And I think that Splinter is smart to hang back and let his sons work it out. Yeah, and also encourage the lanes that they're in. You know, yeah. he is an encouraging voice for Donatello's science, uh, you know, uh, leanings. Yeah, yeah, he kind of like lets them follow their bliss. As long as their bliss involves some kind of ninja training. Yes. That's definitely a huge part of it. According to Dr. Hubner, for some children, conflict between siblings is just the tip of the iceberg. And you may need to use this book in conjunction with therapy. Here's a quote. If your children are harming rather than just annoying one another, or if there is a high level of conflict throughout your family, please seek the assistance of a mental health specialist. This is also a good place to say that Brad and I are not also experts. not <laughs> experts. We, um, uh, like, not only am I taking a book for six to 12 year olds, I'm trying to dumb it down for myself. So yeah. I'm sure I'm leaving out all kinds of really good nuggets. The only thing that Lisa and I are experts in is each other. That's right. And, and we're still messing it up sometimes. Absolutely. Okay, so let's get into the actual material 
for the siblings, for the turtles. Um, In chapter one, entitled Brothers and Sisters Can Be Tough, Dr. Huebner starts with an exercise where she asks the child reader to imagine they were getting a dog tomorrow. They would be really excited and on their best behavior, anticipating how great having a dog is going to be. But then, of course, when they actually get the dog, they realize that they have a lot to learn about patience, (laughs) the hassle, the gross stuff that it takes to keep a dog. There are are things you have to learn to get along with dogs, and it's the same with siblings. I got to put, say here, like she uses this, you have a dog, it's like having a sibling metaphor Mm -hmm. in every single chapter. And I'm not sure how well I would have been persuaded as a child by this, like, line of argument. So imagine John is a Pomeranian. Yeah, yeah. Like when I was a kid, I would ask for a dog every at every opportunity. Every Christmas letter to Santa, every birthday, I always said I wanted a dog. And my mom's hilarious pat answer was, why would you want a dog? You have a little brother. <laughs> and uh, much to her chagrin, one of our favorite games was John gets down on his hands and knees and I would, uh, I wouldn't tie it around his neck because I knew it was dangerous, but I would take one of our Taekwondo belts and I would just lay it on his back and he would crawl around and bark like a dog. Weird. I know. And then I would be jealous. So then we would switch and I would be the dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, I mean, maybe in the long term, um, it was less maintenance than having a dog and <laughs> and two more children because the two children just acted, acted like a dog all the, the time. But to me, I go like, well, I wanted a dog, you know, and a, and a dog would be my dog. Like my brother is his own person. I know that metaphors are not supposed to be literally true, but I think as a child, I would be so distracted by imagining this fantasy world where I'm actually going to get a dog that I don't know how much the message about, like, you should uh, learn to tolerate your brother. Well, then you would just have to tailor the metaphor differently, right? It can't be a dog. It would be something else. Dr. Huebner goes on to say that it's, Just like there's, like, no such thing as a dog without the bad parts, there is no such thing as a sibling without the bad parts. You cannot change your sibling. But you do have the power to change your relationship with your sibling by changing your own behavior. In Chapter 2, The Secret to Seeing Things Differently, Dr. Huebner starts by saying that not everyone loves dogs. Some people are afraid of dogs. Say that you bring your new dog onto the school bus and they begin sniffing around. The student that loves dogs will see the dog as curious, friendly, and pettable, while the student who's afraid of dogs will see your dog as invasive, drooling, and threatening. It's like the students are looking through different glasses. A pair of dogs are great glasses and a pair of keep away glasses. She goes on to say that these invisible glasses also exist for siblings. If you're looking through your sibling stink glasses, you'll see everything they do as annoying, offensive, and gross, like they're existing at you. Imagine looking at your siblings with the same glasses you look at your friends, your no big deal frames. You'll begin to give your sibling the benefit of the doubt, just like you give your peers and your friends at school. 
Do you know who this reminds me of, even though I loathe to bring him up? Oh, no, who? Marco Petrovic of the Five Little Love Rituals. Um, he was our love expert for uh, Carmen and Huen from Dr. Mirage, and he was the worst. Um, <laughs> but, but those episodes were so fun. They were fun. Um, but he had the thing about like the negative perception. Yeah. Like, when you start to build a negative perception of your partner, then you begin, like, building a case for why you don't love your partner anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I love the dog metaphor yet, but I do love the glasses metaphor. And it will be interesting to see, as we go through these seven issues, the moments where we could trade out glasses for certain turtles. Like, yeah. okay, Leo... Put on the the you know your friend's glasses for Raphael, right? Or Raphael, how about taking off those? Everybody hates me. Nobody likes me. Yeah, I'm so alone and yeah. different. And, and, and I think I could even apply that metaphor to various moments in my own life uh, going forward. I think this is something that we could carry with us. I like I do think about like you know once you're in like a stinky negative mood. You begin building a case for why your feelings are so negative. Yeah, it goes into the whole, like, you're writing a narrative that you don't want to be living. Right, right. That you're justifying a feeling that could just as easily not exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm excited to talk to the turtles. But before we can do that, Lisa, we got to get to some words of affirmation. No, no, no. I always love imagining the first time listener who suddenly gets slapped <laughs> with our words of affirmation song and they're going, what the heck is happening? I always think of the Lisa in the past who's like, I'll just sing it one time <laughs> because I'm going to find the time to do a really nice recording of my singing the words of affirmation no, song. No, no. Well, for our first time listeners, the words of affirmation are our way that we give back to our new and upgrading patrons. Patreon subscribers. We curate and we use these ourselves, and we're more than happy to pass them on to you. This episode, Brad was in charge of <laughs> sourcing these words of affirmation, yeah. and he got them from a very interesting source. Yeah, these words of affirmation were collected from the U.S. Oral Surgery Management website. I think I misspoke. Instead of, like, very interesting, I think I meant the word random, like a very random place. Uh, you know, you know. yes, I was Googling best words of affirmation, <laughs> and it took me to the U.S. Oral Surgery Management website, but I think what you're going to discover is that these words of affirmation are sound. They're great. And imagine next time your dental hygienist is in there <laughs> rooting around, imagine them quietly saying this to themselves under their breath. Yeah, going full Stuart Smalley before they see you. Uh, I would love to think that that's what our uh, dentists are doing before they dip their claws into my mouth. Uh, when I am at the dentist, I think of a faraway, faraway island where yeah. <laughs> nobody's in my gob. <laughs> uh, so, okay, all right, we got to get into a proper headspace to receive mm. these words of affirmation. And yes. while these words of affirmation are dedicated to these two Patreon subscribers, feel free, listeners, you can apply them to yourself as well, because that's what we do. Mm -hmm. All right, all right, getting into that space. Here we are. Hmm. Joe loves comics. You are not pushed by your problems. You are led by your dreams. Max, welcome back. You use obstacles to motivate yourself to learn and grow. 
that's nice. Yeah. See, those are good affirmations. Uh, maybe those oral surgeons are onto something. I think so. I think I also got like a little too close to the mic when I did mine, though. Oh, no. Because I was like, Max. <laughs> You're giving the full oral surgery experience. <laughs> Welcome back. Get in there. <laughs> of course, we don't expect all our listeners to support our Patreon. We know how rough it is out there in the world these days. And there are lots of ways to support this podcast. You can uh, give us five stars. Yes. Uh, anywhere you'd like. Yes. On the street. I prefer Apple Podcasts because our best reach is there. You can follow us on your social media of choice. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 You go wherever you want to go. <laughs> if you feel like you got to leave certain social platforms, we understand. But also, you know. We need those numbers. Yeah, yeah. Share, share us with your friends. Yeah, yeah. But thank you to Max and Joe and all our patrons. We're really proud of what we're doing over in that feed. We're almost at the end of our Sandman read-through. We have about 26 issues until the main Sandman title is done. You call that almost done? Because yeah, yeah, yeah it's 25 doing... weeks or so. <laughs> 25 weeks or so we'll In be done. In the grand scheme of yeah, things. Yeah, we'll be done with it next year. And next year we'll also be launching a new series that we're really excited about. Yes. And yeah, like, you know, it, it, I, I just, I'm very proud of what we do at our Patreon feed. And I'm very thankful to all our patrons for keeping this podcast going. Okay, Shellheads, let's talk comics. This week we're discussing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles issues 1 through 7, as well as the Raphael one-issue micro-series entry. All the comics were written, illustrated, toned, and lettered by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, but by issue 5 they started bringing on some extra help, and Steve Levine joined as letterer. The comics were published from May 1984 to May 1986, and you can find them all collected neatly in the Ultimate Collection Volume 1 from IDW Publishing, which is what we're reading from. I don't have a basic plot synopsis for you because the one on the back of the book is basically about what a phenomenon the series was and still is. And you guys know the plot anyway. It's all in the title, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We'll get into the details once we get the brothers into session, which we should do now. So, fellas, turtles, get out of that waiting room and onto our couch. I think there's enough room for you here. We'll make it work. Lucky for us, our counseling couch is hypothetical as well as fictional. So there is plenty <laughs> of room for all of the turtles we want. Which is for this week, but future TMNT CBCC episodes might feature an extra turtle or two. What? Yeah, stay tuned, Lisa. But I had so much fun revisiting these early Mirage Studios issues. They're some of my favorite Turtles comics, but this was your first time reading these books. And I gotta know, Lisa, what was your initial reaction to them? My first reaction was, man, these Turtles are way more serious than I anticipated, but also the plots are way more off-the-wall bonkers <laughs> than I was anticipating. Yeah, yeah, you know, Peter Laird talks about this in the introduction to the 2009 facsimile edition of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that they put out for free comic book day, which we picked up at Baltimore Comic-Con this year. What a score. And he talks about how, you know, 
they just wanted to put out a comic, that first issue, which is why Shredder dies at the end. They didn't imagine that they would continue. And when they did continue, they just started pulling from all the things that they love. So they, they went from like Frank Miller, uh, Daredevil World to let's do a, our take on Star Wars, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, it's, it's a crazy series. When you mentioned in uh, your introduction that Ninja Turtles was intended to be a parody, like it kind of tweaked my brain a little bit because I take the Ninja Turtles and I think a lot of people take the Ninja Turtles very seriously. Sure. As you point out the parody elements, like it's obvious, but at the same time, it's not how I read it. Right. Uh, the foot is a play on Daredevil's The Hand. Splinter is a joke on Daredevil's teacher, Stick. And I think the blind man that Splinter yes. rescues in the very first issue is Daredevil. Yeah, Matt Murdock mm -hmm. appears in issue one. You can call it a parody, you can call it homage. It's not jokey jokey though, yeah. like you said, it's serious and it is filled with character and emotion. And I think from like a sibling dynamics place, we actually have a lot to work with with these four brothers. What's interesting though, is that when you open up the first issue and it begins with this battle between the Turtles and the Purple Dragon Gang, you know, it is a comic that is very plotty plot, plot, plot. Mm -hmm. And you do have these emotional beats, but you have to pick them out of the action sequences or the backstory. Yeah, there's a lot of extrapolation of how the four brothers interact with each other. Like this first issue, I'm shocked that they didn't have like a long-term plan with it because it's an origin story and you're automatically curious about where are the turtles gonna go from here. Well, they do shove everything and the kitchen sink into this comic. It does feel like a go for broke play by Eastman and Laird. This is our one shot. We're gonna put everything into this book, but the result is a comic that Yes, you could easily build from, and obviously they do. There's a whole universe in this first issue. At the same time, it's an extremely stuffed and cramped issue with so much going on. Like, Splinter's origin alone could be an issue. A lot of page space does go into where did Splinter come from? How did he come across these turtles? How did they gain their powers? And I love how... Uh, the structure of the story creates kind of like a bar mitzvah for the <laughs> turtles. Like it's a, like a coming of age moment because when they return from defeating the purple dragons, Splinter says like, you are now at the peak of your skills and you are ready to now like become adults, become the individuals who will fulfill your destiny and fulfill my mission. Right, yeah. What you learn is that the kids were raised with a purpose. Mm -hmm. And the comic book origin is slightly different than the one you get from the movie. It's way different than the one you get in the cartoon. And it colors the whole relationship, or at least the early relationship of the brothers and Splinter in a unique way. Mm. Splinter is still the rat of Hamato Yoshi. Mm -hmm. Hamato Yoshi still falls in love with Tang Shen, 
But it's not Oroku Saki who is his romantic competition. It's Oroku Nagi, Saki's brother, that attacks Tang Shen. And that assault is interrupted by Yoshi. Yoshi then kills Nagi and has to flee to New York. And it is Oroku Saki who then takes up the mission of avenging his brother. He becomes the Shredder, bringing the Foot Clan to America, killing Yoshi and Tang Shen. And that's when Splinter's cage gets broken. He falls down to the sewer. There's the random accident with Matt Murdock and the ooze, the turtles, ninjas. Ah! But the reason I make that distinction is because it muddies the moral waters. Mm. Everyone in this story has an entitlement to their anger. Yoshi, you know, he was defending his lady. He kills this dude. Uh, Saki, his brother is murdered. He's mad at Yoshi. He chases Yoshi. Uh, Master Splinter has his master killed. He now wants revenge. It's like this crazy revenge cycle, you know? And when you seek revenge, dig two graves, except we're following the Ninja Turtles and we're told that the Ninja Turtles are the heroes. And so we side with them because Shredder is the evil dude running the Foot Clan. I do wonder if when Splinter started raising these baby turtles, he anticipated having these paternal feelings towards them because in the like least flattering interpretation of Splinter's origin story, he adopted these four to kill, to murder the Shredder. Shredder. Yeah. And I think that that's a, um, like if I went to the orphanage and I raised <laughs> for random innocence to, in turn, pick on my middle school bully. Yeah, to like become it, murder instruments. It, it would be a pretty twisted situation. The difference, though, is that the Shredder is operating the Foot Clan in New York mm -hmm. and causing a crime spree. Right. 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 So there is a malicious action there that's beyond the vengeance factor. Yeah. The rest of this first issue is the four brothers carrying out this vengeance plan. And again, I, we should just reiterate Splinter's words here. You know, his last words after that origin story to the turtles are, um, I ask you to challenge and kill the murderer Oroku Saki, the Shredder. It is a kill mission. And they're not shocked nor scandalized. No. They're like, okay, this makes perfect sense to us. We do get some differentiation of the brothers' roles in carrying out this plan, Raphael is the one to go and deliver the little handwritten note to- Get ready. Exactly. <laughs> We're coming for you. And then Leonardo acts as the leader calling the shots in that final battle. And each of the brothers has a few panels to like show off their skills, like, Raphael has the size and Donatello has the bow. One of the challenges of reading the Mirage comics is that if they are not carrying their instruments, their weapons, you can't tell who is what. Yeah, you have to use like context clues and, and like after a while you get used to their patterns. But like in my notes, there are like quotes where I just have to write random turtle because I don't know who is speaking. One thing that I think that we should mention is that once they have Shredder in a submissive position where they can make the kill strike, 
they instead say that, like, we may be turtles, but we are not dogs without honor. And they put it on Shredder to commit seppuku. So I think that that is an insight into um, their principles, that, that when training them, Splinter gave them as one of their principles that they are not, like, they might be killers, but they're not, like, murderers. Of course, Shredder refuses, and he throws a grenade and then falls off the roof, and the grenade falls off the roof, and we just assume that Shredder is dead. Yeah, explodes. But he's not. He does come back, but not in these seven issues. One more little distinction that I see as a pattern throughout these seven issues is that on page 39, Mikey is the first to admit weakness. He's the first to say, like, I am really tired, y'all, and I and we need to go home and get some rest. And because Mikey is the first to say he's tired, that gives all of the other turtles permission to agree that they are also tired. So Mikey is always the first one to say, like, I'm at my limit. I can't be pushed any further. We need to take some time. The only other thing that I would like to talk about regarding this final battle with the Shredder is how... It does start off with them taking turns. Mm -hmm. They aren't able to do it one-on-one. They realize their power is their brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And the comic doesn't really harp on that too much in this first issue, but it is something that they will uh, lean in on. The creators will lean in on that idea that it takes the four to win the day. And that relates back to... Dr. Hubner's advice. You have to see yourself as a unit, your family as a unit with a common goal. They really exist to help each other, not compete with each other. Absolutely. Now, going into the second issue, if your only frame of reference was the Ninja Turtles cartoon or the movie, the first issue is going to feel a little odd, but familiar. It's with the second issue and the issues that come after where things start to get even a little further afield from the pop culture, the mainstream interpretation of the Ninja Turtles. The second issue focuses on Baxter Stockman, the crazy scientist who is building Mausers to rob banks. And his lab assistant, April O'Neil, escapes his compound trying to alert the world of his nefarious ways. We do get a really good insight into what it's like to be at home with the Ninja Turtles. The opening page is this beautiful splash of Raphael cringing with scythes in hand, shouting, kiss your butt goodbye. (laughs) But when you turn the page, you see that he's just sparring Mikey in the living room And poor Leonardo is just trying to sit and read Dune. And he's like, come on, you guys, cut it out. I can't hear the TV over all of this racket you're making. And Donatello is soldering a motherboard. And he's like, don't even bother. Just keep out of it. And they'll just get tired and they'll stop fighting. Yeah, I think that the second and third page splash of the second issue really does the best job of differentiating the personalities of the turtles in one image. You know, leader, 
Leo trying to study, even though he's studying Dune, but we should all <laughs> study Dune. There's a lot to learn from that book. Donatello working on that motherboard, soldering some circuits. Raphael getting his anger out on Michelangelo, who is just happy to go along with this sparring session. And Splinter in the middle trying to zone out what's going on around him and pay attention to this news story about Baxter Stockman creating these Mausers to eradicate the city of its vermin problem. I think that Splinter is kind of doing the Dr. Hubner method of just like, let them work it out. As long as they're not literally hurting each other too badly, they need to learn how to cooperate and get along on their own. That's not to say that Splinter is this like perfect parent because the way that this horseplay ends is that Raphael and Mikey end up busting a piece of furniture and Leonardo and Donatello just go like, ugh, typical. But Splinter says to Raphael, Raphael, help Mikey clean up this mess. Where like, why is he like, why is he talking to Raphael directly and not saying, hey, the two of you now clean up this mess? Like, so to me, that indicates like a pecking order where yeah, if but it was if it was just any old mess, Mikey would clean it up. But because Raphael was horse playing, now he has to help. Mikey but he tells clean them up. both to make to clean it up. He says, Raphael, help Mikey clean it up. But if he, you start a sentence, Raphael, he's speaking to Raphael. He's not speaking to both of them. If he was speaking to both of them, he would say the two of you clean up this mess. I don't, I don't know. I think like you're reading too much into the way that that sentence is constructed when it's communicating, you know, you two clean it up. The, like this is because you are an only child where, <laughs> where, where I go. Like if, if they were to argue with him, Raphael would say, why do I have to help Mikey clean up this mess? Because you broke that thing. Yeah, <laughs> but they broke, broke it. it. They broke it together. Yeah. They broke it together. So, and he so should you be, think he would read in, you would think that he's being punished I'm over Mikey. I'm saying Yes. That Raphael, the the fact that Splinter is directly speaking to Raphael to help Mikey, that is a humiliation to Raphael that he would have to humble himself to clean up a mess with Mikey. I'll just have to trust you on that one. The other siblings listening will have my back on this. There is something, there is different shades of meaning to both of you clean up this mess you made than Teresa, help Lisa clean up this mess. <laughs> I think I understand. I'm fascinated by that differentiation. Uh, but I would love to hear from other siblings listening to this episode. Tweet at us at CBCC Podcast or email us, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. From here, I think we can directly skip to the introduction of April. She is running from Dr. Stockman's Mousers and she runs directly into the Ninja Turtles and she in the just sewers. in the sewers and she just faints at the sight of them. And so they bring her back to their sewer lair slash living quarters. And she comes to and Splinter then retells the entire origin story to April. And she is immediately so empathetic, sympathetic to their plight. And she asks the very salient question of like, now that you guys have defeated Shredder, like, 
what is your purpose now? And I'm like, that is a tremendously <laughs> CBCC question. Like, where where do they go from here? And the turtles don't have an answer, but Master Splinter starts to answer for them. But before he can get the words out, we get the news report that a terrorist is holding all these banks hostage with the Mausers. I think that I would like to do the direct quote of Splinter because I think it's another sentence that is steeped with uh, indications. Because what Splinter starts to say is, that is a very good question. And he goes on to say, it mostly depends on what my students, but we know as interviewers right. <laughs> that when someone starts their answer with the phrase, that's a very qu good question, it means that they've never considered that question before. Or, and they're just stalling, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, and and, and it, what's great about the comic is the comic answers it. The plot answers the question. Things like the Mausers are going to appear. Shredder is not the only threat out there. The Turtles can be protectors to the city. I think another uh, like differentiation between the, the movie and the comic is that April plays a very maternal role towards the turtles and like in the movie their first like reaction to her is like ooh hubba hubba what a babe where in this she is she's extremely mothering immediately yeah i think that might have something to do with like their age difference because they're 14 she's probably somewhere in her mid 20s she's accomplished a lot you know, um, she's an intern, so maybe she's finished some kind of bachelor's degree. I think that they see her as much older than them, yeah. where she goes like, I, like, she's like, I'm barely not a teenager. When you think back to your teenagehood uh, and you looked at adults mm -hmm. doing adult things, those people were usually in their 20s. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like 20 year olds seemed like real adults. And now that I'm well beyond my 20s, I look at 20 year olds like they're teenagers. Yeah, yeah. The other fascinating element of the second issue is that it reads like a second issue. It ends on a cliffhanger. It ends with this battle with the Mausers. They're defending April from their attack. Uh, the, the, the lights go out. They get to the lab. The lights go out. And they're trapped. It's a cliffhanger ending. They know, Eastman and Laird know, that there is a third issue coming and probably a fourth issue after that. They're already successful. They're already imagining a future for these characters. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles have now been separated from Splinter. And he was involved with this tussle with the Mausers. Oh, no, he wasn't. He was back home. He gets kicked. So the third issue opens and Splinter has been Mausernapped. Right, right. So the third issue starts with April thanking the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for helping her escape. And she immediately expresses concern for them. Like, do you guys need anything? What can I do for you? As Like, further establishing that maternal relationship. And they're like, oh, we're fine. We're just going to go home to Splinter. Of course, he's not there. And they find the place as a wreck. So they immediately go back to April, and she takes them in. With the removal of Splinter, the brothers are alone, and their relationship dynamics start to further define themselves. 
When they find Splinter gone and the home in a wreck, Raphael immediately starts emotionally spiraling. He's shouting, he's throwing things, he has to be restrained. And Leo shifts into the more leader role, which can also kind of be seen as a parental role. Yeah. And we see the other brothers responding to it. Leo starts barking orders. Hey, Mikey, start cleaning this place up. And Mikey's like, gotcha, Leo. I know how to do that. He's super positive. And then Leonardo mirrors what Splinter did and says, Raphael, you help Michelangelo clean up. And in this dynamic, Raphael resists. And he starts growling and saying no. And he has to be told not to argue. So he does not like being paired with Mikey. Then Leonardo pairs with Donatello, his second, to start looking, which is really what Raphael wants to do. So Raphael immediately rebels and is like, screw you guys, I'm going to look. And they immediately start readjusting. Like, okay, then we'll clean up this place and let's just hope that Raphael doesn't get into too much trouble. Like, I... I automatically start seeing almost like a birth order dynamic happening where Leonardo is the oldest, Donatello is the second, Raphael is like me, the third, and Mikey is the youngest. And I remember as a little kid being resentful of being paired with the youngest, like rather than being seen as one of the oldest. Now, they never say the birth order in these seven issues. I wonder if they ever say the birth order ever in the franchise. But to me, like, I I have that same question of where does this, like, if they were all turtles born in a clutch. Well, we see them hatch too, right? So, like, we see them all hatch relatively at the same time. So how does he, how does birth order even work in that They're function? all hit with the ooze at exactly the same time. So you think their hyper maturation would out like yeah. like outweigh the birth order? So I'm I'm thinking that the birth order dynamic was nurtured in by Splinter, which makes me ask the question, <laughs> why? Or, you know, they they all had kind of like different levels of aptitude for different things. And then yeah, the birth I think order, that, yeah. like, by, by value of skills, the birth order dynamic revealed itself. Growing up, I always gravitated towards Donatello. That was like always my favorite turtle. And I resented Raphael because it felt like the stories always positioned Raphael as the badass, as the cool one, as the as the guy who was always ultimately right, as he is in this issue, right? So he flees his brothers. He does go out on his own. He does get results. He does think he knows where the splinter is. And he returns to the turtles and says, guys, don't worry, I am back. And Leonardo is super angry at his brother for having left them. But then they do agree, okay, let's let's go with Raphael's plan. Let's all go out and now hunt for Splinter. Let's even get April on board, get her van, and let's have a car chase with the cops. That's funny that you think Raphael is right. I, not, I don't think that Raphael is right necessarily. I think that the, the, the stories prove Raphael to be right. I think that they would have, like if they had done it Leonardo's way, where Leonardo 
and Donatello went and looked, and Mikey and Raphael cleaned up. I think that the results would be more or less the same. I, I think that agree. you are relating to Raphael's rebel tendency, where <laughs> he will stand and listen to the plan, and then go out on his do own, it, like he do and it go his own like, way. I'm going to do it my own way because I. I can anticipate what the result will be because I am the person who is ultimately in control. I just feel like Raphael's decisions ultimately steer the plot of all turtle stories. Right, yes, yes. And that's because rebels will commandeer any narrative. Kevin Eastman that doesn't is serve Raphael. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the rest of this issue is just like hijinks. There's like a mix-up and the cops are chasing their van because it looks like the van of some suspects. And it all turns out to be this huge mix-up. But there is one enormous red flag from Leonardo that I'd like to scratch at for a moment. And um, it's at the point where April O'Neil is getting a little concerned about the collateral damage of this car chase. And she says like, this is awful. All of these people have been hurt. And Leonardo interrupts her and goes like, I don't think that they were hurt that seriously, April, (laughs) which I think is considering that they're just innocent bystanders for them to be hurt at all is terrible. And he goes on to say, and remember, they, meaning the cops, started chasing us and we didn't do anything wrong. The responsibility is on them, not us. And to me, what Leonardo is saying is that as long as we are not the instigators of the violence, we are not responsible for any of the pain and suffering. And I think that this toxicity may be a result of them being raised purely for vengeance. No doubt there is something problematic about raising your children to kill the shredder, mm-hmm. making that their end goal. Uh, but I also think we need to take into account their youth in this moment. You know, they are teenagers. They're only just learning about consequence. Having their father figure stolen from them is creating a lot of fear and anxiety in Leo in that moment. So when he is lashing out about like, well, that's their problem. Like that feels like a teenager's response to the situation heightened to the level of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, and also like in a sibling situation like um like he started it is one of the like number one go-tos like i couldn't possibly be the one who's getting in trouble for this because i was not the instigator yeah that's the cops yeah (laughs) right yeah that's their problem we gotta find master splinter and unfortunately for them this issue ends and we see that the tcri folks have found splinter in the sewers and they have taken them back to their labs, and the cliffhanger of this issue is these weird, I'm going to say Krang-like creatures. They're not Krang, but they are these weird little brain things piloting android bodies. Mm -hmm. It's an awesome cliffhanger that doesn't lead directly to the next issue because the next issue is the Raphael micro-series issue and the introduction of Casey Jones. In this issue, we see a lot of... Raphael's tension and sibling rivalry he's had with his brothers coming to a head, coming to a boiling point. And it opens with another sparring session between Mikey and Raphael, but Raphael starts getting like so worked up and so like flustered with all of his rage from Splinter being missing 
that he starts playing too rough. And Mikey goes like, you could never beat me. And do you know why you could never beat me? Because you are too emotional. You, that's why I am stronger than you. That's why I'm a better fighter than you. Yeah, you're too cocky, Wrath. Pride goeth before a fall, buddy. And the truth just socks Raphael right in the gut. And he just loses all rationality. And he reaches for a wrench to hit Mikey with. Yeah. And Leonardo is like, oh my God, you have got to cool it because you could kill Mikey. The, I, I, you know, I was listening to Kevin Eastman talk about this issue and he used it to address that rage problem that Raphael was exhibiting in the first three issues. And the way that he did it was to introduce the notion of Casey Jones, a vigilante who takes Raph's anger to the next level. He is the dark mirror that forces introspection on Raphael. And I love Casey Jones's introduction to this book because he doesn't have uh, like uh, he doesn't have the same origin story as the turtles, right? He doesn't have like a vengeance quest. You know, his his family is fine. Mm-hmm. He's just the guy sitting at home watching the same bad television that Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman did when they were creating these turtles, and he's like watching T.J. Hooker, and he's like, I want to do that to the extreme. I can do it better than T.J. Hooker. I'm going to go out on the streets and start beating on crooks with my baseball bats and my golf clubs and what have you. And when Raphael sees somebody with a similar rage pummeling crooks to near death, Raphael then goes, ooh, I actually don't like that. Is that what I am? But instead of being repulsed and running away, he chooses to move into like, a mentorship yeah, role. Yeah, he goes splinter a little bit for the first time in the series. And I think that that is another one of his like rebel tendencies of like, well, I don't want that to be my identity. I want to choose a more upstanding identity. I do think it's interesting that the Raphael issue ends with Raphael and Casey Jones coming to an agreement and then going out into the night to beat on crooks with an appropriate level of rage. Raphael, in one panel, does do a direct comparison of their two opposing philosophies, where he says, like, I admit, I have a temper, that's true, but at least I try to control it, (laughs) and you you don't. (laughs) Do you, though, Raph? I think that he likes the idea that Casey Jones is a clean slate. He is not one of his brothers who sees him as this like out of control rage monster. This is an opportunity for Raphael to redefine himself in a way that you can never actually do with your siblings. Yeah, yeah. And and the second to last panel before they go off to uh, stop those criminals, Raphael says like, all right, all right. But remember, while we're stopping those muggers, I'm keeping an eye on you. And so it is this tremendous single issue about Raphael's growth. And also it helps us understand that 
uh, boiling tension that's always there for Raphael. Like his anger is so close to the surface and he really does need to continuously monitor that. And uh, as somebody who often flies into fits while podcasting because <laughs> edits don't go the way that he wants them to, I relate to Raphael. Sometimes it's nice to have someone to bounce off of who doesn't know your patterns. Yes, but also I think more importantly, sometimes it's nice to see somebody behaving the way that you do mm -hmm. and you recognizing the ugliness in it. And then if the two of you can recognize the ugliness, you can kind of help each other out. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen after they beat up these muggers, uh, but it's the start of a beautiful friendship. Picking up with the main series in the fourth issue, it begins with the brothers going out to exercise and by exercise, fight the Foot Clan. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that they kind of stumble upon where Splinter might be accidentally and they don't even know it because they find the TCRI building and all they know about the TCRI is that that's the logo that's on the ooze canister. So their curiosity is piqued. Unfortunately, when tussling with the Foot Clan, Mikey gets injured, so they can't go into the TCRI building immediately. So they go back to April's apartment. There we see more sibling differentiation. We see that Leonardo is immediately bandaging up Mikey and um, Raphael is taking care of Raphael, number one. He gets he takes care of his own injuries and he's just coming out of the shower. What I think is the most intriguing and something we haven't really seen yet before is Donatello, instead of resting and recuperating, chooses to continue to investigate. I think that's because Donatello is the science one and his curiosity is around the ooze mm -hmm. and their origin. I think the other brothers really don't care how they came to be, but Donatello, because of that science curiosity, he needs to know more and that's why he goes out on his own at this moment. Yeah, so he has already discovered that the TCRI are not in the phone book, so they're clearly like some kind of secret organization. Um, meanwhile, April returns home <laughs> with this new hairdo that kind of reminds me of like Rosie Perez. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And she is posing in the doorframe, trying to present herself as like this sex symbol. And one of the turtles goes like, wow, you look great. But then the thought bubble is like for a human, <laughs> yeah. which to me, I think is is uh, interesting because we now know that they're not interested in the human form. They are turtles and other turtles are sexy, perhaps. I kind of like in the 1990 movie what a horn dog Mikey is towards April. And I sort of miss that yeah. in the uh, comic books. But I also get a, a giggle out of him thinking like, oh, for a human, gross. <laughs> yeah, I also think that that underscores her maternal role where like... It, like your mom gets a new hairdo. You don't go like, hey, hubba hubba, mom, you look sexy. You go like, you look pretty for my mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is April striking this sexy pose, this Kelly LeBrock pose for the turtles showing off her hairdo? That's the real question. I think that she sees herself as their peers and they see yeah. themselves as 
her children yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, that's a problem. The other cute detail that we get in this issue at this moment in April's apartment is we learn that the turtles have kept the TCRI canister that gave them their mutant abilities. And they keep it in this little glass cabinet. And that's kind of adorable. And they yeah. show it to April. And they're trying to convince April, like, it's really important that we storm this building and find out what's going on. And understand better where we came from. Yes, and they do. They get in there eventually, and to their surprise, they discover that's also where Splinter has been held captive. We also get to see even more of Donatello doing his thing. Even Leonardo admits that getting into the TCR building is Donatello's show. He is the one who has the expertise. Once they find um, Splinter's body, like, then we see everything fall apart. Like, Raphael starts weeping, like, Splinter is dead! And Leonardo is, like, trying to keep the band together, like, hey, cool it! Let's see what Donatello has to say. And Donatello is the person who has the, like... Um, wherewithal, the the focus... The knowledge also. Yeah, to get to the bottom of it and go like, oh no, he's not dead. He's just in suspended animation. In fact, these machines are what's keeping him alive. And just when they discover that, we are attacked by these brain-like creatures in these robot bodies. Mm -hmm. And in the scuffle... Mikey smashes some kind of motherboard and they're accidentally transported to another planet. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles becomes Star Wars. This is like these three issues are the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles longest arc like story arc by far, and it is my least favorite. Yeah, I, I, because it's so far removed from what we think of as the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because it is this science fiction thing on this planet. I can never think of the name. It's like Dehunib. Dehunib. And In what's the this? city, the city of P Black. The city of P Black. Yeah, uh, like it, it's it's such a funky world, and it is a universe that's kind of been explored already in a previous Mirage Studios issue. Fugitoid is a character that Eastman and Laird created back in 1985, the year after the first Ninja Turtles issue. And it was the first full color Mirage Studios comic. And they wanted to marry their two big titles together. It's a crossover issue. I had no idea. And I think you need to have some sort of appreciation for the Fugitoid world to really have a good time with this issue. But if you're here just for the turtles, it's it's funky. Yeah, like may I give just like a quick sentence Please. of like okay, here's my trying to give the quickest of all possible plot synopses. So they end up in this planet, they find Fugitoid he is being pursued by this military force. Because he's a great scientist like Donatello. He's Dr. Honeycutt. Um, but he is also being pursued by the Triceratons. Yeah, which are great looking Triceratops alien creatures. So fun. Um, but they, the Ninja Turtles end up being captured. They are put into some kind of gladiatorial combat situation. And um, in the meantime, like... Uh, April O'Neil. One is, sentence, Lisa. One I sentence. Can't, I can't. It's madness. <laughs> There's only really two points that I want to like um, put a pin in because I feel like they're going to come up in later episodes. Okay. Um, 
There is one upside to being stranded on a remote planet for the, for the Ninja Turtles. And that is that everybody is wild and weird looking. Yes. Um, in the first issue, so much of their upbringing has to do with the fact that they have to stay in hiding. Not just because that's the art of ninjutsu, but they're also mutant ninja turtles. So um, Leonardo actually opens up to Fugitoid a little bit about what it's been like for him to be hiding his whole life. He says, see, on Earth we have to hide because we're different. So we finally get to a place like this where we can fit right in. And what happens, we have to hide out because we're aiding and abetting a fugitive from the law, you can't win. <laughs> like, I think that um, Leonardo push because he has to be the leader, he pushes down a lot of the resentment. He stuffs his feelings. That I think that he could bond with his siblings for if if he felt like he could be more of a peer to them and yeah. not the leader all the yeah. time. Yeah, because if you were to reveal what he's feeling, he would lower himself to their level. And he likes being the leader. He likes being the elder child. There is pros and cons to every position in the birth order. And I think that being kind of grouped into a parental role is a downside for being the oldest sibling. In issue six, however, it is Leonardo who finally unites the brothers against the Triceratons in that gladiatorial combat. He's the one who's like, no, we got this. If we work together, we're going to kick some ass. And then we get, what, like 10 pages, nine pages mm -hmm. of this really epic battle uh, that would put Russell Crowe to shame. I love the way that this sequence is illustrated. It's some of the best art in the entire run of these seven issues. It's so dynamic. There's so much motion and it, it feels good to see their cooperation. And we get to see their different technique, their different abilities with the weapons of choice that they wield. The fight doesn't exactly go their way, though, and it ends with their, like, backs against the wall, completely surrounded, and one of the turtles, I can't tell who, goes like, go ahead, shoot, we're not afraid to die with honor, which is actually the second time in this issue where they have volunteered to die, die with honor. Lucky for them, they don't gotta, because then they are illuminated by the mysterious light of the transportation machine, and they are being recalled back to the TCR building on planet Earth. The final issue, issue seven, is wild, because they are not the only ones transported back to the TCRI building. Some Triceratons are too. Mm -hmm. And the turtles actually partner with those little brain creatures to battle the Triceratons, and they help the brain creatures get back to their dimension. Oh, and also uh, the human army invades the TCRI and they have to fight the army guys. Right, because there was like some kind of beam of light yeah. coming out of the top. Yeah, it's, this, this issue is a lot. This series is a lot. But it ends with April O'Neil has been anxiously waiting their return, watching the news, and then she hears a weird noise coming from the bathroom, and <laughs> the Ninja Turtles and Splinter are all dogpiled in the bathtub, and they're like, hi, hi, April, you'll never guess the story we have to tell you. And yeah. it ends on that, like, laugh. And after a series of cliffhangers, we finally get 
the end mm-hmm. written in the bottom corner. So this is the completion of the first round of Turtle Stories. And I think it is interesting that it concludes with the same notion that the first issue concludes. To defeat the Shredder, we have to work together. Mm-hmm. To defeat the Triceratons, to save Splinter, we have to work together. Here's us working together. Ain't it cool? But not easy. Right, because they are still siblings. And as Don Hubner says, brothers and sisters can be tough. I think that we have a few like pinpoints that I think that we as counselors should keep our eyes on. I think that Raphael's struggle with his rage and resting control of his emotions and his behavior is going to be an ongoing issue. I also think that Leonardo kind of stuffing his feelings about how isolated he feels, even within his own family. And and like, we barely know what's going on with Mikey because he like always hides his true feelings behind a joke or or something for a laugh. I think that he- Or a pop culture reference. Yeah, yeah. He too is like doing his own form of third child stuffing. But we did see in these first seven issues certain moments where they would put on the friend's glasses, Mm -hmm. right? Where they would try to see the perspective of their brothers, specifically between Leonardo and Raphael, but also those moments between the brothers and Donatello and recognizing where he's coming from when he wants to get to that TCRI building. We know that just like having the narrative or knowing that the correct narrative is to um, see yourselves as a unit working towards, like it's not enough to know the right thing to do. You also have to practice and believe in the right thing to do. And I, and Nobody is there all of the time. And that sense of practice is inherent to the appeal of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, The teenage side of these characters, this idea that they are growing and they are struggling and they still have a lot to learn, that represents all of us struggling in our life's journey, trying to figure it out. We're always stuck in a state of growth, whether we like to admit it or not. And then the other thing that's so appealing about the brothers is that they are brothers, that they have each other to rely on, that they have each other to call each other out when the other one is acting the fool. You know, Mm. that constant checking of self through the siblings is fun, especially for this only child reading. There is another thing that I feel like presents itself in the 90s movie that I feel I haven't yet seen in the comic books, but I want to keep like my uh, my mind open to is that they are children of an immigrant, yes, and like there is this kind of push and pull yes. between conforming to the culture of his parents, yes. and adhering to all of his all of their martial arts principles, and also being drawn to American pop culture and film, and just wanting to become their own persons. Yeah, I mean, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is an immigrant story. Yeah. You know, uh, and I love it when the story takes time to dwell on that aspect. Mm. So now I think we're ready to send the Ninja Turtles back to April O'Neil's, and we can have our own little moment of reflection on what we've learned having this session with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
Brad, are you comfortable maybe going first and sharing some of your thoughts? Yeah, I think so. Um, so, you know, as I said, Donatello was like always my turtle. Mm -hmm. But I think in revisiting these characters through the 1990 movie in our last episode and these seven issues here, I see a lot more of myself in Raphael. And maybe it is those rebel tendencies that you like to label me with, Elisa, so often. But I appreciate appreciate the sequences in these comics where Raphael does fly off the handle and he goes off to brood alone to figure it out by himself, but he cannot. Mm. The comic won't let him do that. And whether that is through his encounter with Casey Jones or his confrontation with Leo, it, 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 he doesn't find solace until he has sparred with another person, until he has taken his anger and had it battened back at him by a brother or by Casey. Yeah, we've talked a lot about, like, you know, the, the effectiveness of brooding. Like, when are you supposed to give the angry person space? And when are you supposed to engage and try to resolve as a couple. And I would say that that is probably the primary conversation that we have uh, in our conflict resolutions because we don't behave the same way when we get mad. You want to, like, let's work it out right now this second. Mm -hmm. I want to retreat and think about it. And what we've discovered is it's sort of this happy medium. And that's what we see here in the comics with Raphael. I think sometimes... Brood like a reason a person wants to retreat and brood is that they want to continue the essay they have going on in their head. Raphael goes off and goes like, I'm different from them. They don't get me. I'm misunderstood. I have every right to be angry. But when he has to engage with his, his, his brothers, like that thesis statement is being challenged. Yes, yes. And the other thing I'll take away from this conversation and with your love expert, Dr. Hubner, is the idea of putting on the friend glasses for your sibling. Mm -hmm. I think that is something that I could do with you, right? Mm. Like, you know, I'm reacting this way to Lisa because she's my wife and this is the way I react to Lisa. But what happens if I were to put on my friend glasses for my wife? You yeah. know, how would I react in this situation with Brian or Darren? Or what if I put on my parent glasses? Like, how would I react in this situation to my mom and dad? I, I think that's a clever tool. Yeah, yeah. I do think also, like, the, the Casey Jones aspect of, like, I might not be able to behave <laughs> for myself or for my loved one, but I can behave as an example to someone well, else. Well, I love the idea of creating your own dark mirror, mm. right? So if you're not happy with the way that you're behaving, uh, observe yourself. Yeah. You know, like, what would it be like if you encountered Brad as is right now in this moment? Would you be happy with that Brad? Uh, I, I think that could be a fun exercise as well. We have barely started our conversation with the Ninja Turtles and with Dr. Don Hubner. And one of the things I feel challenged by at this point is like Don Hubner in the opening goes like parents should not try to intervene when kids are squabbling. And like 
And as a sibling, you can't control or the, you can only control your own behavior. You can't control the behavior of your sibling. Like, so now I go like, okay, well, Splinter's hands are tied. You know, Leonardo's hands are tied. Are we supposed to just let Raphael process his emotions in a way that is self-destructive, possibly dangerous, and at times just like a huge waste of time? But what we're seeing in these seven issues even is that changing a little bit, yes, right? Yes. Like, you know, the, the Casey Jones incident, but also with Master Splinter being removed from their family unit, them having to figure out how to behave without their father around. Yeah. Like, there is growth happening in these seven issues. I also think another thing with Don Hubner that... Um, that I go like, I don't know if I agree with that like completely or all of the time, is that most sibling squabbles are for the favor of the parent or the parents. Because I feel like, you know, siblings still squabble when the parents are not around. And um, like, I know that sometimes like what there's four of us in, in my family and we were ne we would never fight two on two. We would always fight three on one. Ugh, brutal. And the and I think the reason is that you are also trying to win the favor of your other siblings. And I think that there is a certain amount of power in ostracizing to bond. You know what I mean? So, yeah, and so like Raphael, when Master Splinter's away, he does become the first outsider. You know, yeah. Donatello, Leo, and Mikey kind of also push him out of the group. Like that's interesting. They're very comfortable with Leo being the leader because Mikey is an obliger and he's happy to do what somebody else says. And Donatello, kind of because he is like. Uh, because he's second in command, he has a little bit more power to go like, well, if I don't like the situation, I can just go do my own thing. Yeah, I mean, he he seems to be the most comfortable isolating himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. has his own little rabbit holes he can isolate into where he doesn't have to necessarily be involved. And I think we'll see more of that as we progress through this series. Mm -hmm. I think we are ready, though, to um, close out this session. With the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm having a great time. I could talk turtles forever. Clearly, those of you <laughs> who are looking at the runtime of this podcast. Uh, you know, it's not our longest episode, Lisa. Yeah, yeah. So next week, we're going to come back first with another creator corner. Holy cats, 30 years ago, the death of Superman happened. To commemorate the anniversary, we're joined by the original writer-artist Dan Jurgens. We get into his time on that classic book, and we discuss the anniversary special that DC Comics is launching on November 8th. We also have Creator Corners in process with Bill Sinkevich mm -hmm. and Alex Ross. I Those know. last two haven't actually happened yet, so we're a little nervous to even announce them. But Our those... cans are open and awaiting those, <laughs> those chats. Yeah, so let, let's just all cross our fingers, make sure that all happens A-OK, -okay, and we'll be bringing you some really rad chats with Alex Ross and Bill Sinkevich. And then after that, we'll return to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, this time discussing the brothers as filtered through the Archie comic series, which 
was still being produced in-house through Mirage Studios, which gives it a truly funky feel. Not as kiddy as you'd imagine an Archie Comics to be. We won't be jumping in at the beginning of that series. Instead, we'll be covering one of the kookiest storylines from that era, Dreamland. Yes, Hitler does make an appearance. Hmm. You won't want to miss that episode. Okay, Brad. We have struck hard. It is time for us to fade away. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show posters, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Brad, you go first. What's your reflection? Tell me now.